Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, and can be found on page 809 in the Pew Bibles. Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word of the Lord. Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Calvary Memorial Church. My name is Joel Miles. I am on staff here at Calvary. It is my great privilege to be here once again this morning to preach. Uh, we are continuing in our Lenten series, though unlike the last few weeks where we've been looking at Jesus's temptations by Satan, this morning we are looking at Jesus' transition from those temptations, which essentially actually took place in private, it was him and the devil kind of working things out, to the beginning of his public ministry. Okay, that's really what's, what we see happening in our text here, Jesus is beginning his public ministry. And Jesus' ministry is obviously something that has caused a massive amount of debate throughout the centuries. In fact, even today, when you read certain scholars talking about Jesus' ministry and the impact, and one of the things that they debate is whether or not Jesus was even successful in what he came to do. Did Jesus actually accomplish his mission? Did he accomplish what he came to do? That might seem like a bit of a bizarre thing to debate since you're all here and it's been 2,000 years, so it would seem, yes, he did do it. But the reason why it's a legitimate question is because, as we just heard read, Jesus came proclaiming a kingdom. He came saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This kind of cataclysmic event is what he was talking about, that God's kingdom has indeed come. That's what I'm going to try and show you in this text He's actually telling the truth. It actually has arrived. But if that's true, why do we just see churches? That's kind of how the debate goes. If Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom and we get a bunch of churches, did he really accomplish his mission? If Jesus was actually right that the kingdom has come, if that's what he was proclaiming, then where is it? Where is the kingdom? Why is our world the way that it is? If Jesus brought the kingdom of heaven, why aren't things any different? Why do we actually have a series like we've had throughout Lent? Why do you have Gerald and I coming up here for the last number of weeks actually talking about the suffering and the difficulty that we go through? Why are we calling on one another to bear one another's burdens? Why do the followers of apparently the king of the universe deal with lives that are so hard that we actually need to be comforted with what God has done Rather than being like, isn't it obvious? It's already here. Why, if you walk out into the hallway out there, can you find four different martyrs, these paintings of four martyrs of the Christian faith, four different people who were killed, 
who were crushed by what would appear to be stronger kingdoms, stronger powers. Don't these things just scream failure? Doesn't our suffering, the need to bear others' burdens, the death of the martyrs, don't these things seem to suggest that the kingdom hasn't come? That Jesus was not successful and we just kind of like made certain things up in order to try and piece it together? Well, I'm sure that you know that the way I'm asking these questions means that I think at least the answer is no. But how can that be? How can we actually process through this? So a number of years ago, I heard a professor of Russian literature talking about the book Anna Karenina. Now, I need to tell you, I've never read Anna Karenina. My wife really wants me to make sure I tell you that because she has read Anna Karenina. And she's like, don't you dare put yourself on a level with me. <laughs> so I have not read it, but I've heard a professor talk about it. And I generally know the story. And when the professor was talking about the book, he was explaining how in our culture today, we basically always interpret the story wrong. We think the most recent movie that was done in Anna Karenina is done this way, that Tolstoy is holding up Anna as a model of how to actually live the good life by chasing after your, your desires. This is how you should actually live. When in reality, Tolstoy was trying to show the absolute destructive nature of that way of life. How if you live this kind of like way where you just go after your desires, it just absolutely destroys you. So those who live normal lives, actually the ones who are stable, who are okay, who actually have happy lives. But the professor explains that the reason we miss this so easily is because we all assume that we know what the good life is. We all know what to look for if someone's really going to live a fulfilling life. And what do you do? You chase after desires. And so because we assume we know this, we can't actually even see the criticism that Tolstoy is putting forward. To see it would actually require some kind of conversion of the mind, some turning and looking a different direction, looking for different things in order to see what Tolstoy is doing. Well, that is what I think is happening actually with Jesus' arrival into the world and with him bringing in the kingdom. You see, we tend to assume that we know what a kingdom should look like. We know what victory is, and we know what it would mean to actually take something over. But what if Jesus was bringing in something completely otherworldly? What if the kingdom that Jesus brought is nothing like what we've actually seen in our world throughout our history? What if he brought in the kingdom of heaven? Well, then perhaps we'd have to have different expectations. Perhaps to see it, we would need to repent, turn around, look a different way in order to see that actually it's here and it's one and it's actually dominating our world, but we can't see it because we're looking for the wrong things. Well, that's what I try and show you as we look at our text today. I want to try and show you that, yes, it is true that his kingdom has come, but we need to repent, turn around, and we're going to be able to see that it is here. So let me pray first and let's dive into the text. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you, Lord, that he came as the conquering king. He came as the lion. And he became that lion through being the lamb. Through actually letting his enemies, letting us kill him. 
I pray, Lord, by your spirit, you would open up our eyes to see this reality right now. Lord, that we would be able to cherish something as wretched and horrible as a cross. Did you see that on it, you have not only saved us, but you are saving our world. May you use me right now by the power of your spirit to make this more real, to help us see that this is true. May you do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, please look at me at verse 12 of Matthew 4. And again, if you've closed your Bibles, I encourage you to open them back up. This is on page 809. Okay, so verse 12. So Matthew says this. Now, when he heard that John, that's he being Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. All right, so as I mentioned, this is a transition verse at the beginning of our text. And I'm sure in many ways, it kind of seems like a bit of a throwaway verse that's not all that important. But there's actually a lot that's going on here that's pretty helpful for understanding what is happening in our entire text. So if you've been with us throughout our Lenten series, including the sermon that Pastor Gerald preached on Ash Wednesday, you remember that Gerald preached on Jesus' baptism by John at the end of chapter 3, where Jesus comes to John the baptism in the Jordan to get baptized, which he eventually does. Well, that John, that John the Baptist, that's the same John that's spoken of here in verse 12, whose arrest has prompted Jesus to go into Galilee. And that, again, is a pretty important detail because the text is not just saying that Jesus happened to go to Galilee at the same time that John was arrested. Actually, the way that Matthew has written this is that John's arrest has basically caused Jesus to say, okay, it's time. It's prompted him to go into Galilee. Okay, why would Jesus do this, right? What, what is the link between John, his arrest, and Jesus' intentional move to Galilee? Well, to begin to understand that or answer that question, we need to remember who John is. So at the very beginning of chapter 3, John the Baptist is first introduced by Matthew when he says this. Okay, you can look over one page before, beginning of chapter 3. Matthew says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Okay, now we see in these verses that John was sent by God as a kind of anticipatory figure. He was to go and prepare the way for God to arrive into our world by calling on the people of Israel to repent because of the imminent arrival of this kingdom. Basically, John was sent in anticipation of the arrival of God into the world. He was to prepare the way for Yahweh himself. So John's arrival is not the arrival of the kingdom itself, but he is its anticipation. He's right before it was to happen. He was its forerunner. And the quote from Isaiah that Matthew uses essentially describes this. Because it comes, in the book of Isaiah, it comes in chapter 40, in this transitional place in the book of Isaiah. So before chapter 40, it's like chapter upon chapter upon chapter of judgment for Israel's sins. But in chapter 40, this turn happens where God suddenly promises that one day, one day he will bring comfort. One day everything will be different. One day God's true servant will arrive and he will bring a new creation, a new kingdom. And this will be preceded by a voice that screams out in the wilderness, God is coming. Make his way straight. Prepare the way of the Lord. Well, that's John. John is that voice 
who is preparing the way for God to arrive by calling on the people to repent. And this is part of the reason why John doesn't want to baptize Jesus because he knows who Jesus is. He's like, that's the guy who's actually bringing the kingdom. I'm the anticipation. That's the one who's actually bringing it. So I shouldn't baptize him. He should baptize me. But Jesus says to him, and we'll talk more about this later, that it's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. It's necessary to rightly bring in the kingdom for you to baptize me. And so John does it. John baptizes Jesus. The spirit descends on Jesus. A voice declares that Jesus is God's son. And then the focus completely shifts to being all about him, about Jesus Christ, which makes complete sense because John has done his work. He's prepared the way and now he's handed things off to Jesus. However, we do know from places like the Gospel of John that John the Baptist, there's so many Johns, guys. These J names, it's like, come on. But John the Baptist did continue to do some stuff after this. But in our text, when John's arrested, it is the official end of the ministry of John the Baptist. And that's why Jesus goes to Galilee. Because his ministry is now over. It's time for Jesus to take center stage. Okay, so again, if you look at verse 12, and I'm gonna read longer here, look at verse 12 again and see what it says. Now when he, meaning Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. You see, Matthew is explaining that the reason Jesus went to Galilee once John had been arrested is because Jesus was intentionally fulfilling the words of Isaiah. So he moved north. To put it a different way, John being arrested truly meant his time was done. The public ministry of the voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord, to usher in his heavenly kingdom had ended. It was now time for the real thing to take center stage. It was time for Jesus, the one who Matthew was already called God with us, to step out into his public ministry and usher in that kingdom. And so Jesus went to live in the place where God had promised in the book of Isaiah that his light, his kingdom, his child would begin to shine out of. So the passage that's quoted here from Isaiah is actually one that you probably know. You actually probably know quite well, now it's not the exact portion of the passage that's quoted here, but a lot of times in the scriptures, when a passage is quoted, the writer is actually implying the whole thing. Okay, they didn't really have copy and paste like us. They weren't highlighting and putting stuff down. So they weren't going to write all that much. They're like, I'm going to write a few words here. You can figure it out from there. So that's what we got to do. This is a section in Isaiah that is extremely familiar to us. It's Isaiah 9. You hear it all the time in December. And if you go and look at Isaiah 9, where this comes from, it is a text then of great promise after great judgment and despair. So it comes on the heels of Isaiah 8, which speaks of the darkness that was coming to Israel for her sin, that the land was going to fall into gloom and darkness of exile. An exile, many actually believed, and many, many argue, was still being experienced by the Jews in Jesus' day. They continued, when Jesus came, to exist in the shadow of Rome's dominion. And so they were awaiting God's arrival. 
for his kingdom to break through and liberate them. And John came preparing them, saying, it's about to happen. That kingdom is about to come. But with John's arrest, it was time for Jesus to step in so that the time of Isaiah 8 would be over and the promise of Isaiah 9 would be fulfilled. Because Isaiah 9 was about God's kingdom coming, its arrival. It was a promise that one day amidst the darkness, a light would begin to shine out of the north part of Israel, out of Galilee. One day the gloom would end. One day God's kingdom would break into our world. Because as the text of Isaiah 9 goes on to say, after it talks about a light shining of Galilee, it explains that that light is a child that will be born. It's a son that will be given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. As Isaiah 9 is about the promise that one day, God himself will come and he will bring his kingdom. One day, God will arrive and the kingdom of heaven will be with him. And Jesus went to live in Galilee because he is that fulfillment. He is the dawning of that day. He is that child that was born. He is that son who was given. He is our wonderful counselor. He is our mighty God. He is our prince of peace. He is the one who has established the kingdom of justice and righteousness forevermore. But that means we need to think about what that truly means. Because again, as Matthew says in verse 14, Jesus went to Galilee in order to fulfill that promise. Or you could actually translate the word fulfill, complete what was spoken of of Isaiah 9. Meaning Jesus did this not so that in the future, way down the line, when Jesus returns, God's king would rule but rather so that Jesus would fulfill that promise. Then, during his lifetime, during his life, death, and resurrection. In other words, when John the Baptist proclaimed that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, he wasn't lying. It was about to break into the world through Jesus, which also means that when Jesus actually steps up in our text and says, and it says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, when Jesus says that, we actually should probably understand it a slightly different way than John. John is saying, it's about to be here. Jesus is saying, it's right in front of you. It's confronting you right now. The kingdom is before you because he is the very embodiment of the kingdom of heaven. In the person of Jesus, we are no longer waiting for the dawn of a new day. Light has already broken through. A new day has indeed come because God's son, God's king has arrived. But if that is true, then where is it? Seriously, where is the kingdom of heaven? Where is this light? Where is this reign of justice and mercy? If Jesus has actually done this, as Matthew was claiming that he did, if he has fulfilled Isaiah 9, why can't we see it? Why don't things look different? 
This can be a really confusing thing for us to grapple with, and I think often leads to us kind of subtly twisting the message of the Bible so that everything Jesus accomplished just gets pushed into the future. We await the kingdom. We talk about it that way. Or sometimes we say things like, we're building the kingdom here. As if it's not in these areas and we need to know, kind of take it over for God. We need to expand God's kingdom. But that's not the way the New Testament talks about what Jesus has done. It's not like he's like kind of ruling. And more of it's going to come later. It's actually, he is the Lord. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, not Savior, Lord, you will be saved. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus will come before his disciples. And when he gives the Great Commission, this is the part of the Great Commission we usually cut off, but we shouldn't because it's a really important part. He actually comes to them and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Meaning, there's no place where we need to go, we need to go out there and like, Take it over for God. Jesus already rules there. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the king already. He already reigns over all things. He already has accomplished the victory. But then why can't we see it? Where is it? Why is it so hard for us to spot? I think it's because we don't know where to look. We don't know what signs to actually look for. It's because we keep looking for it as if it should look like the kingdoms of our world. But this text and Matthew is telling us through his gospel that the kingdom that Jesus brought into our world is so much different than what we would normally expect. So in last week's text, the focus on the final temptation that Jesus faced from the devil, Matthew explains to us in verse 8 that the devil showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And the devil told him, if you want these, if you worship me, I'll give them to you. you. You can have the kingdoms of the world. You will worship me. And remember that Pastor Jared pointed out to us that those kingdoms are what Jesus came for. He actually came to claim the kingdoms of the world. But, and this is what's really important, not just claim them, but transform them. He came not just to take them over and let them sit there, but to make them new. That you give those kingdoms a new kind of glory. And this is why Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven rather than kingdom of God. So in Mark and Luke, it's always the kingdom of God. Matthew changed the phrase, not because he's being non-historical, but because he's trying to push us to understand what Jesus is doing. He's bringing in something out of this world. Something completely different where you need to actually have kind of a rewiring of your mind to understand what he has done. He's bringing in a heavenly kingdom. But honestly, thank God. Is there any of us actually satisfied with the way that the world is? Do any of us look around and say, man, I just wish Jesus would just keep it the way that it is. Wouldn't that be great? No, I mean, think about the amount of lamenting that happens these days with the state of our world. It's staggering. And it's from people all across the political spectrum. All of us know something isn't right. This world cannot be the way that it's meant to be. Something's wrong with this. We don't just feel it about our lives. We feel it about the structures of our world. Something is wrong. But what I find fascinating about that is we keep looking for answers to these problems in the exact same ways 
We keep trying to find solutions to our problems by just recycling the old things over and over and over again. Or if we just had this political leader, if everyone agreed on this ideological point, if we could just be more capitalistic or more free market or more socialist or more accepting or more tolerant or less soft, I could keep going. That's what we do. And often this kind of mentality creates an us versus them kind of way of thinking about things. Because so often when we are convinced that one thing is the answer to our problems, then anyone who disagrees becomes the other. They become the problem. They are the issue. They are the problem. If only those people over there could be stopped, then everything would be fine. That's the way of our world. It is the way of the kingdoms of our world, and it goes all the way back to the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they just blamed one another. Eve blamed the serpent, Adam blamed Eve, and we've been warring ever since. That is the way of our world. It's the way of every single kingdom or empire that's ever seemed to last. How do they last? They last by decimating their enemies and keeping others at bay, crushing those who oppose. But what's been the result? This. This is what happens when we go that way. We keep pursuing that way of life. What we experience, what we see all around us, what our world is, this is our glory. We've had thousands of years to get it right. And we're in the same spot over and over and over again. We need something different. And Jesus came proclaiming that very thing, proclaiming a kingdom of heaven. But what that means is that's how it's going to look. It's going to be radically different than what we expect. It means we can't use the normal categories for finding or for seeing it. We need to have a radical conversion of our minds, of our expectations, of our hearts, if we're going to see this kingdom. And so did the people of Jesus' day. Because the kind of kingdom they were looking for, the kind of king they were looking for, was a military, liberating, conquering, judging king. They were essentially looking for someone who would enable them to win their us versus them battle. That's the kind of kingdom that the Jews of Jesus' day were looking for when their king arrived. And perhaps shockingly, that is in many ways what John the Baptist was looking for when Jesus came. So that doesn't mean I think that John the Baptist was wrong about what he was saying. Okay, he wasn't. I just think that if we pay careful attention to what happens here, John didn't even quite understand how Jesus was going to fulfill the words that he was saying. If you read through Matthew 3, what does John preach? He preaches judgment. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. He spoke of Jesus as one who would give the Holy Spirit, but also as one whose winnowing fork was in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor and gather wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John proclaimed that this coming king was going to defeat and decimate his enemies. This king would set up his kingdom through bringing judgment. And guys, he was right. He was certainly right. But what he did not expect at all, what no one expected, what we still have such a difficult time believing and knowing, was that the king would bring that judgment first down right upon himself. That he would bring that wrath down right upon him. That he would defeat and decimate his enemies through allowing them to nail him into a cross. And then he would cry out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. 
What he did not expect was that this kingdom would come not through an us versus them, but through Jesus in love, becoming one of us, associating with us sinners so that he could save us. To put it a different way, John and the people of Jesus' day certainly would not have been surprised that the Messiah would be able to stand up after defeating death and saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. They would not be surprised that, they, that the, the Messiah would reject the devil's temptation, but take the kingdom anyways. They wouldn't have been surprised by that. What would have surprised them is the road he took. What would have surprised them is the sign of that victory would be his public crucifixion for the sin of his people. What nobody would have expected, but what we need to cling to, is that the ultimate sign that Jesus has brought the kingdom is seen through his loving, substituting, victorious death for your sins. That the king was crushed for us. And that is the sign that he has won. You see, this is why John doesn't want to baptize Jesus. Because John's baptism was a baptism for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the king who was coming was coming to judge sinners who wouldn't repent. So why get baptized yourself? Why does Jesus choose, as Gerald pointed out to us when he preached on Ash Wednesday, why does Jesus choose to get baptized so that to actually begin his ministry by identifying with sinful humanity? That just doesn't make sense. That's not what a conquering king would do. And yet Jesus says it's necessary to fulfill our righteousness. It's necessary to rightly bring in this kingdom because the kind of kingdom he brought is one we've never seen before. It's so different. It's a heavenly kingdom. It's God's kingdom of heaven that is breaking into our world and has already taken over our sin-filled kingdoms. It's not then coming by an us versus them battle, but by a merciful God who dies to save the very ones who killed him, which is precisely why the call for us, just as it was in Jesus' day, is to repent. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because that's a universal call. That is a call to every single one of us. Even people like John the Baptist. If we will turn from our sin, God will bear that sin on himself. It's a call of judgment and mercy. Judgment because this kingdom of heaven is here and it's coming and those who oppose it will be thwarted. But it's a call of mercy because all of us have opposed it. Because all of us have actually stood in God's way because all of us are sinners, even John the Baptist, but all of us are offered to be part of this kingdom. If we are willing to indeed turn from our sin, go the opposite way with our lives. And when we do that, what we will actually find is that while this kingdom of heaven is not yet fully revealed, it is here. We will actually see its signs all over the place. You see, we often misunderstand what it means to repent. Sometimes we apply the word repentance as if it really just means feel bad. Like feel really bad for your sin. Feel sorrow, sorrowful for your sin, which I think we should feel sorrow over our sin. But that's more like an aspect or like almost a, an indirect thing that happens through repentance. Because the word itself means to change one's mind. It means to have this kind of radical conversion of your understanding of things. It means not just to turn from your sin because you think they're bad or unethical, but to actually reorient your entire understanding of what all of life is about. It's to turn around 
Have a U-turn where you now see that you are meant to be going, living, looking in a different direction. It's meant to actually call us to see that life should be lived differently. That the good life is found through actually turning around and going a completely different way. So repent. Repent. Stop living this way. Stop walking away from God. Stop thinking that life would be better if you just followed your own way of the world or our culture. Turn around. Go the opposite way. Because God's heavenly kingdom is coming and it's actually already here. That's the message to us. We are being called upon to turn from our sin, but also from our expectations, from our assumptions of what this world should be and what God's kingdom should be. Because if you want to see God's kingdom, if you want to see God's reign that's already here, you can't look for the military hero. What you have to do is walk down that hallway and see people who actually knew what would give them life is Jesus, and so they were willing to be crushed by others because they knew that was actually victory. They knew the only way to actually claim people's lives for Jesus was not to defeat them by taking them out, taking the culture back, but by letting the culture crush them and praying, God, let them see that this is true life, that this is truly living. So if you go down that hallway, the last one that was put up this week is a Japanese martyr. His name, I think, is Paul Miki. I think is how you pronounce it. And I encourage you, we have, we have papers there. You can read through things about their lives. But while Paul was on the cross, they crucified him. He preached his last sermon while hanging there, and he cried out, Lord, please forgive them, as my, as my, as my Savior has forgiven me, and let my blood actually be a seed that would grow up to new life. Every single martyr there was crushed by what we think is more powerful. And yet when Jesus went into the grave for us, he came back. And that was the dawning of a new day. And those of us who know this, you'll be able to see that there's a different way to live. There's a different kingdom that's here and it's all around. Just think about who are the heroes of the kingdoms of our world? Who are the ones that we venerate in the cultures around us? Since ancient times, it's often been military leaders, heroes of battle. And today, we don't do that as much anymore, but who do we build statues to? Sports figures, people who are impressive. I went to a Bulls game last night, and Jordan is just soaring over my head there. And Blackhawks players that probably no, none of us can name, because they're, they're older. That's who we celebrate. But in the church, who do we celebrate? Those who have died. Those who have been crushed. Because we can actually see that in that is victory. Loving those who hate us. Caring for those who are around us. Being crushed in many ways is victory. Why? Because that is what Jesus did for you. And he came back. And in so doing, he ushered in a new kingdom. A new way of life. He brought the kingdom of heaven. And every single one of us can be part of that. If we will indeed turn. Turn around, go the opposite way, because God has brought in his kingdom through his son. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you that in what he has done on the cross, 
we know that there is nothing more for us to do but just to rest in what he has done. And that because of that, we don't need to cling to the things of this world. We don't need to try to live for ourselves. We don't need to try to win. We can love because we've first been loved. We can care for others because we've been fully cared for. And we can actually take up our cross and follow you because you took up yours. You took up that old rugged cross and in that have offered life to all. And actually taking that up, Lord, you did what no one thought was going to happen, which is you purchased the kingdoms of this world, but also began to transform them into a different glory. I pray that now, Lord, you would enable us to praise you because of this, that we would thank you for the old rugged cross on which our salvation, the salvation of this world, was purchased. In Jesus' name, amen.